The podcast under the stairs. Void diary entry number eight. Movies are a magician's forge. They allow you to build a story with your hands. At least, that's what it means to me. What attracts me in movies is to be presented with a problem and be able to solve it. Nothing else. Just to create an illusion, an effect, with almost nothing. Mario Bava. You're listening to Druid FM on 192 BC. Welcome to the podcast Under the Stairs. Hi everyone and welcome to the podcast Under the Stairs episode number 47. I'm your host Duncan McLeish and welcome to the show. Hope you guys have been doing well out there and keeping yourself nice and busy. Um, I hope you enjoyed the almost four and a half hours of John Carpenter um, on the John Carpenter Roundtable edition of the podcast Under the Stairs. The download figures for that show were absolutely incredible. In fact, they shattered the Argento Roundtable uh, downloads in the first three days, which was a... Something quite incredible. You guys clearly love your John Carpenter. Um, feedback for that show has been fantastic as well, and I'm led to believe it's been doing quite well over in the Legion feed, which is something generally that this show doesn't do. Uh, most of my downloads come from this side, so it's been fantastic to hear. Um, my guests seem to all really enjoy it, and um, like I say, feedback's been pretty awesome, so thank you very much, guys. Um, I think what I might do for the next round table is uh, put out ideas and feelers on the Facebook page to see if you guys want us to do another uh, director's conversation or maybe pick a subgenre to talk about or maybe even just a, a question like we did um, with the very first roundtable uh, where we looked at remakes, just something like that which may be worth uh, thinking about and seeing what you guys come up with for the next one. Anyway, on this show uh, I have two movie reviews for you. Um, the reviews were conducted with myself and I guess from the previous uh, roundtable just there, uh, Mr. Doug Pilly from No Budget Nightmares, um, we discussed two movies from the Italian maestro Mario Bava. We did Blood and Black Lace, which is about to get a Blu-ray release finally um, through Arrow Video in April, so I'm incredibly excited about that. I already got my pre-order in. Can't wait to have that in my eye sockets. And um, Black Sabbath uh, from 1963, which um, I think is a woefully underrated um, horror anthology. So uh, the conversation will be pretty good, I imagine, uh, and hopefully you guys enjoy it. Um, other big news uh, for the podcast Under the Stairs, which dropped this week, if you were checking on the Facebook page, is I can now finally announce, um, overjoyed to announce, um, that we can tell you all about the, the secret information I've been holding on to about, for about three months now. Um, the podcast Under the Stairs in conjunction with um, horror artist Graham Humphreys uh, when I say in conjunction I mean that I've commissioned them it's not like a, a proper partnership but I like the other way um, I've commissioned Graham Humphreys to do a poster for the podcast Under the Stairs which we'll be selling um, through the, the Facebook page 
I will only be making these as a, a run of 75, so they'll be pretty limited. Um, I'll let you guys know near the, the time when they're going to drop, etc. But when those 75 are gone, they're gone. Um, I'm keeping a few behind uh, for future competitions. In between Blu-ray giveaways, we'll, we will put up some posters further down the line. Basically, my plan and intention is this, is not to, to, to have you break the bank. Um, the posters are going to be very affordable in comparison to how much other people charge you for posters. I don't see the point of getting them done and then no one being able to afford them. Um, but the, the artwork is going to be pretty stunning because anyone that knows Graham Humphreys uh, knows that the guy is super talented. He's done some of my favourite VHS covers from the 1980s, uh, some of my favourite artwork for DVDs in the 2000s and his work with Arrow has been nothing short of absolutely fucking mind-blowing. Uh, so I'm very much looking forward to that, so just keep your eyes peeled and like I say, I'll post stuff up on the Facebook page uh, as and when I know it. Kind of hoping that they will be ready for probably the end of April though. So uh, yeah, that's, that's quite exciting news. Uh, for me anyway, I think this is uh, something that I've been wanting to do for a wee while now and finally get a chance to, to kind of move in that direction is going to be pretty cool. Um, I have recorded in the next couple of shows for the podcast Under the Stairs, uh, just general to free up a bit of time. So um, I have some great guests coming up over the next couple of weeks. I've got the Baz coming back on to do his next instalment of his Friday the 13th retrospective. There'll be four movie reviews on that one, part 5, 6, 7 and 8. Um, almost at the, the, the finishing line with that one, we can't wait to finish that retrospective because it feels like it's dragging its arse now and uh, yeah, no one likes that. Um, I have Johnny Krug uh, joining me over the next couple of weeks as well to talk about Psycho and Dress to Kill. Um, I have Mark Ball from the Midnight Horror Show over to discuss wear and late phases. Um, and I'm also recording a show with Dave from Rock and Real Reviews and that will be of Honeymoon and Extraterrestrial so that's the next couple of weeks sorted um, it had been my intention to drop a Women in Horror episode in February because that's when Women in Horror Month is however um, I've been invited to a Women in Horror Month event in the first week of March so I'm going to delay that uh, episode off just so uh, there's an opportunity to interview some people that I'm quite interested in interviewing and I can talk about the event um, afterwards some short movies uh, so I can't wait to, to, to check that out and bring that back to you guys on the show um, other big news is that It Follows um, is getting a UK release at the end of this week so uh, I think it comes out on the 27th of February and it is the movie that everyone is talking about at the moment. So if I get a chance to see that, um, I think I'll probably do just a standalone review. Uh, maybe couple that up with uh, one of the many interviews that I've got um, recorded to put out for one of the shows. So like I say, lots to look forward to. So with all that in mind, um, I think it's time we just get delved right in and enjoy some movie reviews and some Mario Bava. So go take a short break just now. When I return, you're going to hear the trailer for our first movie review uh, with my special guest, Doug Tilly. That movie is Blood and Black Lace and I'll be right back after this. My name is X. And I'm Cootie. Please consider us your high priest and priestess of satanic cinema. Join us on our podcast, Kiss the Goat, which will drag your soul through some of the finest and worst devil movies of the last 50 years. Devils and demons, exorcisms and possessions. 
cults and rituals, dogs and cats living together. Is that a devil movie? Maybe. Sort of. I don't know, babe. We'll talk about it later. Join us on the Horrorphilia Podcast Network every other week as we don our hoods and cloaks and... Kiss! Kiss the the goats! It's a hell of a good time. I knew you were going to say that. Of course you did. It's in the script. Do you like movie reviews that are insightful, thought-provoking, and delivered by somebody who's trained to critically dissect every aspect of a motion picture without ever having to use obscenities? Then you've got the wrong show. Kruger Nation Horror Podcast is ready to feed your slasher movie and exploitation needs. There'll be more blood, expletives, and titties than you can shake your grandma's beetle flaps at. Visit www.krugernation.com. A house of high fashion, a dazzling whirl of elegance, of exotic extravagant beauties. An adventurous journey into the devastating allure of the most sophisticated women and their intimate secrets. Suddenly, these lace curtains ignite a drama that will lacerate your emotions. Blood and black lace. Who is this shrouded, sadistic, sordid fiend who maims and murders? Why this bloodthirsty orgy, this holocaust of lives? Blood and black lace in bleeding color. For shattering, shivering, shocking experience. Welcome back. So we're doing our first movie review. You've just heard the trailer for that first movie, which is Blood and Black Lace by the horror maestro that is uh, Mario Bava. This show um, is paying honour to the great man by doing two movie reviews. Uh, you're being spoiled in the second review because it's technically three movies. Um, so yeah, that's that's how I work. Just spoiling you. like a ninja with like treats. Uh, a ninja treat or a treat ninja. I don't know. Anyway, um, in order to undertake... This uh, delving into uh, two of Bava's kind of more influential works. Um, I have brought back a guest that you heard on the previous show. Uh, This man is involved with No Budget Nightmares. He also does the Not So Evil Episodes podcast. Is of course, Mr. Doug Tilly. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing terrific. It's a little early here in Canada, but uh, I mean, what uh, after after a long dark night, what better opportunity to tackle uh, a couple of great Mario Bava movies? Yeah, I mean, originally I had floated the idea with you about doing Black Sabbath because it's a movie that, you know, I'm I'm very familiar with. I've seen it God knows how many times and all the rest. And you were like, whoa, 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 Duncan, pump the brakes, <laughs> pump the brakes, take a step back. Why are we just doing Black... Why are we not doing Blood and Black Lace as well? And I was like, you evil genius, Tilly. Yes. Um, that, that's that's what you're now known as on and on these shores as the evil genius Tilly, um, because you suggested the two, and I was like, that just makes sense. It makes sense because technically, and and the movie we're going to be talking about later on, um, and Black Sabbath, there is the hint 
of um, one of them has the hint of what would later be known as a Jallo, mm. but people widely consider Blood and Black Lace as the template, the the archetype um, template for what would be, you know, a dominant period of. 70s and early 80s Italian cinema um, in the Jallo. So um, we're, we're slightly doing it reverse <laughs> for some reason, but uh, I really want to talk about Blood and Black Lace first. Um, so before I even get into that, I've mentioned that you're part of some shows. You do quite a bit of writing as well on the on the webs. Uh, would you like to tell the listeners where they can check out your content and your podcasts? Sure. You can find my writing over at dailygrindhouse.com. I write about low-budget, ultra-low-budget, micro-budget, and shot-on-video uh, horror and exploitation. That's usually my, my uh, focus over there, and I interview a lot of uh, uh, directors in that field. Uh, you can also find me at No Budget Nightmares at nobudgetpodcast.com and uh, facebook.com slash groups slash nightmares all one word. Or check me out on Twitter at Doug underscore Tilly. That's T-I-L-L-E-Y. Awesome, awesome. Right, so um, like I was saying to the people, they've just heard the trailer for Blood and Black Lace. Now, as is customary on this show, the first movie review, um, I, I let go of the reins um, <laughs> and uh, I, I, I give the guest the first stab at it. Um, I mean, we can go spoilery on this one because this movie's what, like 40 years old or something now? <laughs> um, 40 plus. Uh, so we can go spoilery as, as we want. Uh, and I get, I get the feeling that we're going to be talking about a lot of technique here. Um, because it's very difficult to talk about Bava films without talking about technique. Because the guy, I think, in a lot of respects, was kind of ahead of his time. Um, so, uh, with that in mind, Mr. Tilly, if you wouldn't mind um, giving the listeners uh, the lowdown on, one, what uh, Blood and Black Lace is about, and two, what you thought of it. Uh, Blood, and Black, B- Blood and Black Lace is probably my favorite Mario Bava movie, which uh, it might be a little interesting to say. I mean, he's a, he's a man who had his number of classics. It's interesting to talk about Blood and Black Lace right now because uh, just a couple of days ago, I did a podcast covering Mother of Tears, the oh. Dario Argento movie, uh, which I know that you've discussed at length previously. <laughs> but in preparing to talk about that, I also went back and watched Inferno. Now, Inferno... <laughs> Uh, was technically uh, the last film that Mario Bava ever worked on. Because, yes. Yes, and, and you can see there's such a clear kind of thorough line between Blood and Black Lace and Inferno in terms of its visual styling. And it's, uh, it's interesting when you compare Mario Bava's 60s films and 70s films because his 70s movies, they, they got very textural. They, the, the, the style was always there. But his 60s movies have this warmth to them that you don't really see in a lot of his 70s work. And then in Inferno, that warmth really kind of came back. And it's, it's, you know, knowing that Argento was not only a fan, but really, you know, uh, uh, that influence was so kind of severe that they were actually working together. It's really interesting to now go back once again to Blood and Black Lace where, you know, really it all began. Yeah. Uh, now, in terms of the plot of it, it, it there isn't really a lot to it. Which, uh, <laughs> I mean, let's face it, most giallo or most most gialli, I should say, are are like that. Uh, it's it takes place at um, at, at like a uh, fashion house where a bunch of models are uh, being kind of picked off one by one by a faceless killer. I mean, this should all seem very familiar to anyone who knows the genre very well. Uh, the killer, of course, wears black gloves, uh, kind of a fedora, and is, is faceless in the very uh, 
distinct sense in that that when they show the killer, they have a, a, a like a mask that yeah. that fi- that uh, hides their features entirely. Uh, and the murders themselves are, of course, incredibly stylish, incredibly violent. Uh, in fact, intense in a way that certainly in 1964, when this movie came out, must have just been. Uh, it must have just blown audiences away. Certainly more intense than, than you would be getting uh, out of American horror films. And really, in this movie, you can see that sort of direct influence from Hitchcock as well that, that the Jolly normally has. I think actually Mario Bava, one of the things he said when he was going into Blood and Black Lace was that you know the way that Psycho has kind of two very stylish very memorable murder scenes. He wanted to up the ante on that and just have like, I think there's six uh, major uh, kills in this movie. I think one of the titles of it actually (laughs) states that there are six kills, just in case you don't know that going in. Uh, And what you discover, and again, yeah, we can dip into the spoilers a little bit, that uh, the murders that are taking place in the movie, which are, um, uh, we don't really know the motivations at first. We find that two of the main characters, um, are actually working together, and that's why. And in fact, it, it, it's funny to hear echoes of that or see echoes of that in movies many years later, where you see a killer, where you have a red herring that, or a number of red herrings, and you don't know who's actually doing the kills. And then you find out that because it's a pairing, that's how th- certain things make sense a little bit later on. But uh, but one of the things I really appreciate about Blood and Black Lace is that it actually makes sense. And I know that's a funny thing to say, but when you watch <laughs> a lot of Gialli, I mean, it, it, a lot of them don't. A lot of them actually trade sense for the visual styling, and that includes a lot of Argento's films. And I love that in, in some ways, but it can get a little frustrating when you're watching a lot of them and you start to, you start to kind of ignore the plot a little bit because you feel like it's not going to be satisfying. Yeah, but, yeah. And that's one of the things that you... And when we talk about both of these movies today, that they're very satisfying experiences even when watched from uh, uh, an American point of view or, or in my case, a Canadian point of view where, where you're used to a story kind of having that beginning, middle, and end and actually even have a satisfying mystery element to it. So, uh, I mean, Blood and Black Lace is the total package when it comes to kind of that, that uh, gunshot at the beginning of the genre. I mean, it isn't really the first, uh, as we're going to talk about, <laughs> but, but in terms of the first real color Giallo film, I mean, it, it, it's not only the, the first, but it, it's really one of, if not the best. Yeah, I mean, I, I I completely completely agree. I think it is funny because like we're obviously you're you're kind of you've touched on Argento there as well, and I did at great length do one of the the roundtables <laughs> uh, on Argento, and I, I I went through every Argento movie in a month, so I sat down and watched all of them, and there is a certain point, um, circa late eighties early nineties, when the the guy like there's a noticeable com- complete disconnect between uh, story narrative and visual style, um, and it, they were always kind of kind of teetering with, with Argento, but he just throws them basically. He throws a lot of the narrative stuff away um, when it hits the nineties, and kind of concentrates on how how can I construct the most wonderful shot for this murder sequence. Um, and I, I mean, you on some level because you then start delving more into that subgenre and checking out like Filch is another one that maybe isn't best at portraying a full narrative um, but when you look at Blood and Black Lace that's the one thing that does stand out like kind of paramount above the the very beautiful look of this movie is very as you can tell straight away this is 
kind of sixties Italian cinema because it looks so beautiful. Um, these guys were were, were craftsmen of of um, not only fashion but um, that that kind of aesthetic moved over into their movies. And the one thing that does kind of stand out to me about Blood and Black Lace is how much everything does make sense in the mm-hmm. movie, um, which you do not expect. Like when you sit down to watch. A, a, a Jallo movie that you kind of like you were saying you kind of get to that stage where you're like right the killer's going to be someone kind of unexpected it's not really going to make sense but <laughs> you know, f- fuck it I'm just going to watch the movie um, but this one does have like that kind of a, a very clear through line um, I, I love the fact that the, the kills are all are all kind of their own artistic set pieces which mm-hmm. I, I think really kind of in some ways, when you are a filmmaker and you are scripting beautiful death sequences, which, I mean, by today's standards, you shove on any kind of schlocky horror movie that's come out in the last wee while, um, they, they, they go for nasty, gritty, dirty-looking kills. And that's because they want to make you uncomfortable when, when watching it. In a lot of respects, a beautifully shot death sequence in a movie can be just as haunting mm-hmm. and just, just as unsettling because it's that kind of juxtap- uh, juxtaposition of violence and beauty or um, a particular score playing w- with something like on the complete polar opposite of what the score is indicated to be with in the background. And, and, and Baver really kind of nails that. I mean, th- this does kind of set out a lot of the templates of how to transfer the kind of the Hitchcock style over into Italian cinema and it's it's always been quite funny to me that that people automatically go to uh, the oh well the Italian Hitchcock is Dario Argento because he did so many Giallo movies I'm like well I love Argento he's like one of my favourite directors of all time but he's not the greatest storyteller and <laughs> if there's one thing Hitchcock did above all others was he was a great storyteller mm-hmm. he, that way really absorbing you into a movie very very quickly regardless how contrived or difficult the plot was um you you felt like you were you were absorbed by it and you you were you were on the journey um bava especially in this movie is far more hitchcockian than pretty much anything argento ever puts out um and i think that's quite i think that's quite interesting that like but by by the time that Bava was kind of winding down his career in the the kind of late seventies, um, very very early eighties. Because uh, Inferno is nineteen eighty, I think. Maybe yeah. Serves. Yeah. So I mean, by by that point, um, the the fact that there's a a new pretender, so to speak, now taking up the mantles, and that's accolade that put is put on him, kind of feels like a bit of a disservice. Although I don't think any director worth their salt their salt really wants to be painted with the name of another director. I mean, all you have to do is, in fact, I'm doing a show um, later on today, which will be coming out in about a week's time, where I'm doing a Psycho and Dress to Kill. Right. And um, you see how much De Palma had to go through <laughs> with the, the blatant Hitchcock comparisons, which carried right through quite a lot of his early career, even though he wasn't doing... Right, you could say Dress to Kill is very Hitchcockian. There's other movies that man did that get tarred with a Hitchcock brush and you're like, this is not Hitchcock. This is really not... This is nowhere near Hitchcock. You're just doing it now because he's made a movie with a, a shower death sequence where the main character dies in the first 30 minutes. So, I mean... I think that's the thing that kind of stands out to me about this one. I love that if we're if we're going if we're going slightly technical here. Um, <laughs> I love how beautiful this movie looks. Mm-hmm. Even even on my shitty uh, copy that I have, I love 
how beautiful from the opening shot uh, with the the bold colours of the 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 house sign blowing in the wind and the the, the lighting. I know once again Argento. A lot of people are like, oh, Argento's lighting's phenomenal. Well, that that comes from Bava. He it was directly influenced by Bava. Um, in fact, there's that famous story where uh, uh, Argento had the 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 copy of uh, A Bay of Blood which was playing at his local cinema stolen um, his friend stole it for him uh, and the, the cinema couldn't actually play A uh, Bay of Blood because it didn't have a copy anymore so they had to play something else in its stead and apparently Argento still has that print never played it <laughs> but still has that print because he was so obsessed by that movie so obsessed by the work of Bava and you can see it this movie is incredibly beautiful to look at the visual colours are I kind of liken it um, in, a, in a way to... If you ever watched Peeping Tom, mm-hmm. and um, Peeping Tom, obviously, same year as Psycho, um, similar sort of... It kind of deals with a similar sort of subject matter. Um, however, Hitchcock makes a conscious decision to do it in black and white. He's doing this movie in black and white. And um, Peeping Tom doesn't. Peeping Tom doesn't have any blood in it, really, per se. Um, while... Psycho does have blood. Psycho is revered as a masterpiece of cinema. Peeping Tom is shunned, ostracised, cast <laughs> out, and pretty much ruins a man's career um, because you know of the the, the 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 implied violence and the color, which it's a very colorful movie. It doesn't look British. It kind of looks Italian. And look, going back to Blood and Black Lace, that kind of got me thinking. You know what I mean? I, I don't know if that was an influence. I don't know if Bava ever saw. Uh, peeping Tom, but there is a kind of strange uh, similarity between the, the, the use of colours in that movie and the use of colours in, in Blood and Black Lace. I mean, v- visually speaking, w- what do you think it makes what do you think it makes Bava, especially in this phase in this kind of, the Blood and Black Lace era, what do you think makes it so interesting to look at as a filmmaker? What do you think maybe differentiates him from, from other filmmakers at the time? I mean, really, I don't think there's any filmmaker who was making movies that looked like this at the time. I mean, when you see some of the films that Bob were, was making previously, even his sword and sandal style movies, they were all very well, not all, but the, but they were generally very colorful as well. Uh, but the way that he uses color in this, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that there are some examples that you could you could uh, point to where they're used similarly. But in this kind of context, when they're used to light murder scenes. Uh, I mean, the idea that, remember, we're just a couple of years removed from Psycho, uh, and and the idea of these kind of colored gels that are giving this otherworldly feel to the backgrounds of every scene. I mean, and right from the beginning, just like you said, I mean, you have these outdoor stage-bound scenes, but these outdoor scenes where nothing about it looks real, but that that unreality is actually focused on then it's and and like there are lights coming from the sky which of course make no sense that those lights would be there and you almost have to kind of uh transition yourself in terms of how what you expect out of the look of a movie because this is not somewhere where real where it's kind of bound to those rules of reality where you can really kind of have carte blanche to do whatever you want in terms of that style one of my favorite scenes in the movie takes place in like a, an antique shop uh and that I mean, and it's incredible. That it, it's such an amazing place for one thing to have uh, a, a suspense scene take place, but also the look of that place. It 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 allows you to play with shadows. It allows you to play with lighting. It, there's a, a great moment where because uh, in the antique shop the light is kind of um, going on and off, on and off, 
and there's a great scene where the uh, the the woman uh, in question, uh, her name is Nicole. She sees uh, the killer appear, and then the light goes off, and then it goes on again, and and the killer is has vanished. And I mean, these sort of visual tricks. And again, that's another thing. Mario Bava wasn't just a a masterful director and cinematographer, and he he I guess he did some uncredited cinematographer work, cinematography work, I should say, in this movie. But he also was a visual artist in the sense that he did special effects, he did matte paintings, he knew how to control the look of an entire frame and uh and work with um almost give a three-dimensional element to everything that he was showing so this was a person who was really you know in that traditional sense is, is really painting with light and painting with color when he's making his movies so in that scene you know it it has this kind of real beautiful sheen to it and then culminates in an act of i mean even now kind of disturbing violence and and that mixture of something that's so beautiful and that ends up in such a uh, a kind of affecting uh, and almost your breath catching your throat type way. I mean, that's just, it, I can't think of anybody doing something like that at the time. And it, that the fact that this is in the world of fashion and it allow, allows that kind of. Uh, comparison of that kind of beauty and horror. I mean, it it really it it's a reason why this movie has aged so well because that otherworldly element. It, because if it was realistic, if it was played very realistically, it would feel incredibly dated. But the fact that it's so colorful, it actually kind of puts it outside of the time spectrum a little bit and allows you to enjoy it really for what it is. Yeah, I I think that's on some on some levels. I think that's why certain Argento movies age quite well as mm-hmm. well because he you know he would go on to use a very similar very similar technique if if not maybe a more kind of grandiose version of certain colors. I mean, the, there is that kind of feeling where and you mentioned Inferno earlier on, and I've yeah. always I've always been like a. I, I bang the drum for that movie. That movie gets a lot of hate. Uh, but it's because... interesting, I mean, about Inferno, because you mentioned that the late 80s, early 90s, when it comes to Argento's work, he starts to really focus on the visuals, maybe at the uh, detriment of the script. But Inferno yeah. almost has no story yeah. at all to it. Uh, and that's what kind of makes it work. Because yeah, I, it's, it's like probably, I've, I've, the way I always tell people to watch that movie is imagine imagine a dream because it is i think it is one of the most exquisite examples of what a dream feels like in Absolutely. cinema um and it, it's so unsettling just by the use of color um or by the use of sound and and things don't make sense and when you try and as as you you could give yourself a migraine trying to work out exactly what's <laughs> happening in certain bits i mean when you open when you open doors and find yourself in what looks like a medieval cavern with some sort of goblin stirring a pot in that movie, you you kind of scratch your head because it is like so uncharacteristic of anything you've seen to that point. Um, I love the fact that you touched on the fact about Mavi, uh, Mario Bava, the, the artist as well, because he was famed for doing these glass paintings mm-hmm. for, for, for movie things, and he, he, he used them in Inferno, and I think Inferno... Uh, it has that kind of? I, I don't think there are as many beautiful, and people can argue with me if they want, as beautiful or gentle movies as there is Inferno. There are certain sequences of that that sequences, certain sequences in Inferno, which are just pure bava beauty. Which, like, I mean, it, it kind of it does that. that movie never fails to to kind of captivate me. And I think you're you're talking about um, 
just, I mean, he, he not only does he, especially in this movie, but not only does he kind of go through the, the kind of thriller tropes, the kind of horror tropes as well here, kind of sets out the, 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 the kind of template for for the the idea of the Jallo. Um but I think he, he goes one step further by making, like you were saying, that, that the, the advertisement for this movie was there is a distinct amount of kills in this movie. Um, and none of the kills feel even remotely similar. Um, they're, they're all their own set piece, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, their own kind of... You could take any one of these kills at all in this movie and sit and dissect... You know how the camera looks, what what, what the lighting was doing, what the set, the, the scores doing at the time, how the killer is in this one. You know the, the ways he kills people. He never really plays any of them the same way, and I I I I love that about this movie. I think the fact that the, the very first kill in this movie, um, he basically bludgeons a woman's head off a tree. Yeah. Um, I, I'm trying to cast my memory back to to what it would have been like. You know of movies of that time, and obviously talking about Psycho again. The shocking part of Psycho was that people believed that what they had seen in the cinema was a woman being stabbed in the shower. When you never actually saw that, you, the the editing was done in such a way that the mind filled the blanks in. Right. Um, and this is blatant violence on the screen, and it is so angry and so yes. viscerally angry Absolutely. right from the outset that you know straight away when watching this movie, that you're in for a completely different experience than than pretty much anything you've seen before. The fact that that violence is carried out on a a, a woman, a, a very attractive, fashionable woman, in such a horribly graphic kind of fashion at the time, it, it really does kind of, on some level, make you... I, I would imagine that if I was a cinema goer at, the, at this time and I'd been to see this movie and that had happened at the beginning... I would be kind of feeling quite uneasy and that I would not have a clue where this movie was going. And I think that, once again, is great storytelling. It's a great use of... And how many movies have done that since then? How many horror movies do you get, you know, a graphic kill at the beginning, which mm-hmm. pretty much sets up everything that's going to happen afterwards? I mean, that's the benchmark of, of the Jalo is that when you watch a Jalo, someone will die at the beginning and there's an investigation into that. Um, the thing about this one is the kind of whereas a lot of the other Jalos have they focus quite heavy on the police procedural aspect of solving the crime. This one doesn't rely too heavily on that one. Mm-hmm. I love the fact that we get to spend a lot more time with the actual the you know the the, the models in the house. Um, and you kind of get to feel that you know all their names and you know who they are. Later movies, you may struggle with that. And once again, I like that as well. It's three-dimensional, fully-formed characters um, in this surrealist sort of setting. Um, it's wonderful. I think I really do. Like, coming back to... It had been several years since I've seen this. I hadn't planned on checking it out until the, the Blu-ray dropped Arrow Blu-ray, right. which I think comes out in April. Um, and when you mentioned it, a part of me was like, yeah, I kind of want to hold <laughs> off. Uh, but the other part of me was like, I really kind of want to see this movie. And if anything, it'll, I, I'm in, I think I'm in a better place when watching the Blu-ray now to understand what they have actually done to it. You know, whether they have added sequences in. I don't know if I don't know if there's a case that there's still things to be added into this uh, movie or... Or you know, just what they're going to do with it. I, I, I'm, I'm incredibly excited about that. But um, in terms of... I, I mean, look, look at it from this point of view, right? You like you say Bava comes from a, a background... Like a lot of Italian cinema 
well, a lot of Italian filmmakers um, were a jack of all trades. They, they had they did westerns, they did comedies, mm-hmm. they did thrillers, they did horrors. Um, just because, and I tend to find that they would be releasing them in quick succession. Um, so they were never really kind of taking the time to stand back and say what necessarily worked in this project and what didn't work in this project. And I, I find it interesting that the year before this movie, he puts out Black Sabbath and he puts out in Black Sabbath um, the telephone, um, which, uh, for all intents and purposes, has a lot of the... It's kind of like a proto-Jallo mm-hmm. to an extent. Absolutely. I love the fact that like a year later, he has focused in on this kind of story and kind of brought it over and then just started playing around with it and and expanding out on it in the space of a year, which, you know, is it's incredible how much that he, he takes such a 20-minute a, a short movie, bring it over, dissect what worked in the movie, change it over, transfer it onto, you know, a larger, a larger stage and play it out again. And um, seeing it that way, it's, it's an incredible jump in the... Uh, Technique, although don't get me wrong, when we're going to talk about Black Sabbath, I'm going to gush over that movie, ridiculous, because <laughs> that that fucking movie, oh my god! Um, do you know people talk about anthologies? Mm-hmm, why absolutely. is that never? Why is that never the first word that comes out their mouth? That's a really interesting question, especially because they tend to go for to the uh, the Amicus or or Hammer, I guess, also uh, anthologies yeah. first in terms of or if uh, otherwise they're they're going to something a little bit more modern. But you're right. The, the the thing about anthologies is there always tends to be one or more weak links and well we'll get into Black Sabbath in a little bit but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there's nothing weak yeah. about that movie. <laughs> so I mean I, the the thing one of the things I quite like about this movie as well and you touched on it as well is that there's there's not one main antagonist in this movie which like you quite accurately pointed out is a technique that is used by god knows how many movies after this one and i can't think of many before this i can think of scenarios where there had been movies in a horror where you know it may be uh, like a, a woman who is having an affair and then they decide to knock off the husband or something right, right. I, can, I can't think of many that do it quite in the way that Blood and Black Lace does it. I mean, how important do you think it is to the narrative of this movie to have that idea of we think we know who the killer is, but then they give us something else? Well, I mean, in terms of, of making it, a, a, again, a, a bring that satisfaction at the end, obviously it's incredibly important because it doesn't make sense because there's a part where one of those main characters gets put uh, in jail, basically. The, the the police have rounded up all these men and then the killer is, is continuing to go out. And then the audience who may have feel like that they figured it out, that they feel like that they're kind of one step ahead of the filmmaker, well, then they discover, wait a second, what is going on here? How is this going to make sense? And then... You know, there's a part of me when I watch movies like that, which are always like, well, how much do I trust this filmmaker to give me <laughs> something that's going to make sense at the end? And when things come together, it it absolutely does make sense. And which is strange because, again, there's this otherworldly quality to the movie as a whole, a heightened sense of what's going on. So if he ended up doing something which is sort of a trick, pull the wool over our eyes a little at the end, it wouldn't have been the most tragic thing in the world. But uh, I certainly, from the perspective of kind of a traditional mystery stories and coming out of out of film noir and, and the 50s, and th- this one, I think, had the expectation, hey, you know, we're going to be watching you. You have to make sense. And it absolutely does. And again, I think that it gives you that one last kind of, after all the murders have happened, after all that kind of really stylish elements have come together, 
it gives you kind of that final moment of of uh, kind of clear satisfaction, especially because this movie ends on a fairly tragic note uh, as well. You know, you mentioned before, it's interesting that there are two antagonists in this movie because there isn't really a protagonist that we follow. And that's another thing that's kind of different from a lot of, uh, of the Giallo films that, that, that happened in the 70s. Is there tends to be one person or a pair of people that you kind of follow the action with. But in this case, you really are sort of just jumping from model to model as you see them either doing some sort of investigation or pushing the plot forward a little bit, or you're, then you're, you're looking at the police element. But you aren't really just following a single person's uh, thorough line in terms of what they're discovering. So we're really jumping around all over the place. And uh, so, so it's without a single person to kind of hold on to, all you really get is when you, when you finally get to those final moments and you find out who's been behind everything, those are the characters that, if you're, not that you're necessarily expected to relate to, but that you're expected to understand their motivations and what kind of pushed everything forward. Um, and you actually even find out that, that one of those characters is, is more malevolent than the other, uh, even though they're both very murderous. Uh, and and uh, just going back actually a little bit uh, outside of that, one of the really amazing things about Blood and Black Lace is how low budget it was. Yeah. Uh, I mean, coming four years after Psycho and made for, I think, almost like a quarter, actually less than a quarter of the budget of Psycho, I mean, th- this kind of visual styling, and again, in color. And Psycho, of course, was known as a low budget movie for Hitchcock to be making at that time. I mean, this is an incredibly low budget movie made in like six weeks. Everything looks like it's so specifically pieced together and has, has so much time has been put on it. But, it, I mean, I, that just is more kind of tribute to how much uh, skill Bava had. Uh, one of the things, and again, I, I, if you do have a version of this with a, a Tim Lucas commentary, I'm, obviously nobody knows more about Mario Bava than Video Watchdog's Tim Lucas. But one of the things he mentions in some of those early scenes that take place at the fashion house is that they didn't have a dolly. They couldn't afford one. So they're using a, a child's red wagon and putting the camera on it and doing all of these complex moves. And in some ways, I mean, still very smoothly done. You would absolutely think it was on a dolly. But it even actually gives him more freedom to move the camera around. Uh, things that you think of ultra-low budget directors doing now... He yeah. was doing, but making it look like something that was ten times the cost. Yeah, I mean the the, the thing about this movie, that, like, which is a huge standout, is the fact that you know that he didn't have a lot of money to work with at the time, um, as was the case with quite a lot of Italian cinema until you got to, I mean, Argento. I, I, eventually got to play with millions upon massive budgets for movies mm. um which were, were all spent on the shots you know like these massive constructed cranes there's that famous story about him shooting the sequence in um opera where they follow the bird right. and he had this massive crane constructed to the top of the ceiling which then traveled around in a circle so he could capture that you know to, to do all these these effects and when you consider that I mean, the one thing I would say about the you know Blood and Black Lace is, is how seamless things are shot. So to to imagine things being pulled along on a, on, a, on basically a, a kid's red kind of buggy <laughs> trailer thing blows my mind because I mean it's like you say it's having to having to adapt and be inventive to try and get the shot that you want, um, but at the same time not compromising where at the position of well it didn't turn out all that great but I need to put it in anyway. He's obviously he obviously was a bit of a perfectionist um and 
it, it works. It works a lot. I mean, a, a lot of what he does, and once again, we're, when we go on to talk about uh, Black Sabbath, one of the reasons I love about that movie um, is that is that end sequence where you know, in the Italian version, I don't know if it's actually in the American version or not, where at the, the very end, um, when um, the camera pulls out and shows you mm-hmm. how the set has been done, um, which, when you see how that's all constructed, <laughs> uh, it's, it's incredible, because y- your mind then goes, oh, right, because of all the things, even down to the, the small bit of cardboard in the background, which has got a light behind it, which is twirling round to give the idea of, like, hazy clouds in the back. You know incredible. what? That yeah. sequence, and you're right, it's not on the American version. I think that's one of the most amazing little pieces in cinema history for, for a number of different reasons, but one of the things that it really demonstrates is the difference between how Americans view uh, audiences and how Italians view audiences, because the the American distributors didn't want that in there because they thought that it it gave away how low budget the movie was and how kind of right and and how and how he had to use everything available to him. But while the Italian distributors, they knew it's like they should appreciate how much he's doing. They should appreciate the efforts that he went in to create even something like this, a very small shot in the context of the entire movie. But I love that and talk about it. I think that's the most perfect ending. I mean, I, I, oh, yeah. I again, we're going to gush all over we're, we're, it. Yeah, we're, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah so, so I mean, it's is, it is a, a testament to the filmmaker as well, is obviously, you know, having a, a clear visual idea of how he wants things to be constructed and, and basically working within his budget. I mean, one of my biggest criticisms with modern. Uh, modern filmmakers in general is how um, they will try and put things into a movie which they can't necessarily afford and because they can't do it to a particular standard um, it kind of pulls me out like uh, recently um, there have been a couple of movies such a, that have had incredibly poor CGI and um, I've liked the majority of the movie but that poor CGI pulls me out of it because I, I just don't feel I just don't feel satisfied by it. I, I, I'm, I'm a firm advocate of that. You know, work within your budget. When you can watch a movie like the... And I drum about this one all the time. When you can watch a movie like The Battery, for example, which is made on pennies. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's made on next to nothing. And how beautiful that movie is shot. And they do everything. There is nothing in that movie that screams... Um, this is where the budget went. You know what Absolutely. I mean? <laughs> At the cost of anything else. To me, and a I low think- budget is 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 you have to think of it as an opportunity to be able to take chances, right? And the battery takes chances from beginning to end. I mean, I I'm that movie wasn't just wasn't just a blowaway experience for me. It was also I got excited watching it because I was thinking, oh gosh, why isn't everyone taking their low budget and going out and doing something so different? But so sad. I mean, I love that movie. <laughs> that's yeah. another one we could talk As, oh, about. Oh yeah, oh yeah. That 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 that, um, that came second top in my list of movies mm. in 2013, just because I was floored and I knew how much it cost before I watched it. Right. Uh, and I was like, "Where's the catch? <laughs> Where's the catch? <laughs> there's there's something going on here." Um, I think. Uh, but bringing it, bringing us back uh, towards the the, the kind of closeout for for this movie review. Um, I mean, uh, when when we sit back and we think of of Jalo, a lot of the time this movie isn't mentioned, and I think that's because the 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 actual full influx of Jalo doesn't come 
like really until a couple of years after this movie. Um, it kind of feels almost like it's it's so ahead of its time in terms of Jalo horror. Anyway, Jalo as in that kind of the, the the crime the crime movie aspect. You know, those, those start to creep out, but um, and and Bava as well in terms of the the artist and the filmmaker. I mean, just in general, before we go on and talk about the one that came the year before, which, oh, my God. Um, but before we talk about that, I mean, what do you think in terms of of the legacy of Bava? Obviously, a lot of people will look at his legacy as being the guy that, that, that started the, 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 the Jallo genre, um, which other people went on to do weird and fascinating things with it. Um, but if we take that away, what, what do you think has his overall legacy is as a filmmaker um when when you look at something like blood and black lace uh, you know as a as a movie it, it's an interesting question because in some ways you would think bava would have a much larger uh kind of quoted impact on american films and and kind of hollywood films even compared to argento because i mean a movie like black sabbath and to a lesser extent, Blood and Black Lace, you know, it, it, they had it pretty healthy American releases. So they were visible over here. There are a number of Argento movies which, which uh, you know, if they were available at all, they were available in a severely cut version. And, of course, in this case, cut versions as well, but not nearly as severely. Um, so it's, it's interesting that his influence uh, isn't as kind of clearly stated by a lot of filmmakers. But that said, I mean, especially now, uh, he's quoted... Uh, so consistently by horror filmmakers that uh, that you it's easy to kind of pick out elements that they've sort of taken from him or have yeah. have used to show uh, some sort of tribute to him. Um, and I, I think Blood and Black Lace is a really interesting example because even uh, certainly compared to Black Sabbath, because it the form that it was available in to most people is certainly not the ideal one. Either it was a cut form, or it was uh, truncated in some way, or it was, uh, you know, the, the 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 visual style of this movie is so important to it. Even now, it's hard to find a pristine version, something that really shows off what it actually has. Um, so, but but that said, in terms of its long term influence, I mean, this is the starting point. I mean, you could say that that Bava's film, the the girl who knew too much, a few years before was yeah. a was a, a giallo. But I mean, that's black and white. But in terms of what a modern color uh, film uh, that 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 has a lot of those tropes and maybe more to come afterwards, you know, there's the this one has it right. I mean, it has the razor blade, it has the gloves, it has the mystery, it has the beautiful women, it has the stylish kills. It even has a really amazing soundtrack, which we haven't really talked about, but yeah. it really does a really great kind of jazzy uh, soundtrack and a main theme. And so, so all the those pieces are here, uh, and and uh, just waiting for Argento to take them and kind of form them into. Uh, what we now know as as kind of the 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 outline of what makes one of those films, if anything, this one is more of a mixture of what Bava was doing previously and what would then form those kind yeah. of seventies Jalo movies. So I mean, it's, it's it's the the influence can't really be overstated because there probably wouldn't have been the bird with the crystal plumage if there wasn't blood and black lace, and if there wasn't yes. the bird with the crystal plumage, then you wouldn't have that 70s uh, series of Jolly from all of those different filmmakers. So, yeah, I mean, 
I mean, this it's is like, it. It's like a full-on, re- it's like a full-on renaissance, really. When you look at the, when you look at seventies Italian cinema, it's, it's just unlike anything in the world. You know what I mean? It's like so distinctly different than anything anyone else was doing. Uh, and I mean, even Bava contributed on. I mean, when you look at what we mentioned earlier, a Bay of Blood. I mean, mm-hmm. Bay of Blood is a proto slasher. In a lot of respects, you know, I, I love the fact that in that movie, and that's, we're going way off topic here. Um, the fact that that he he kills the idea of the Jallo at the beginning of that yeah. movie because yeah. you see the glove killer, and then you find out who the glove killer is two seconds after, and then that person is killed, and you're like, I, I don't know what you're doing here. <laughs> I, I mean, you want to talk about someone ahead of his time? He he was so ahead of his time that he was getting tired of the genre when it was just getting heated. Right, and he was already moving on to the other thing that wouldn't catch fire for another six or seven years after this, right? Yeah. So, I mean, you got Bird with a Crystal Plumage came out in 1970. This is Blood and Black Lace in 1964, and nobody yeah. takes up that mantle. I mean, no one was doing an imitation of this. Uh, there weren't like like Blood and Black Lace uh, knockoffs for the, <laughs> yeah. the years afterwards because no one could do it. So, I yeah. mean, it, it, you want to talk – he was so ahead of his time that it almost did him a disservice because by the time that these things got really hot, he was already moved on to something else. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. Um, on this show, uh, Doug, we, we grade things not on a, a – I would try and attribute technical values, but um, <laughs> on, its, on its most fundamental rating, we use the Netflix style because I think sometimes we can love a movie even though we acknowledge it isn't very good. Um, so in terms of grading, the grades go, one, that you hated it, two, you didn't like it, three, you liked it, four, you really liked it, and five, you loved it. How would you grade Blood and Black Lace? See, this is going to be a really unfortunate <laughs> scale for this particular show because, yeah, yeah. I mean, we we intentionally went into this knowing that we <laughs> how much we enjoy that. So I'm going to go five right off the bat. I know that that's I, I I'm not a person who is loose in terms of their ratings, and generally I don't really like giving ratings. But yeah. I'm certainly not someone who's just going to throw out uh, high numbers uh, without without kind of pondering it a little bit. But come on, man, this is blood and black lace. Yeah, so it's a five from me. I think. Um, I, I think, like we said, I mean, the, the, there are there are things in this movie which had never really been done before, which took years for people to really catch on and and try to to build upon. Um, so far ahead of its time, and it's 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 first and foremost as a wonderfully enjoyable movie. See, see if you like. Something with a bit of suspense. Um, if you don't know anything about this movie as well, I remember the first time watching. It, I didn't have a fucking clue who the killer was. Um, and uh, yeah, I just think I, I just think it's, it's difficult to watch this movie and not love it. Um, so we're going to take a very short break. Uh, there's going to be some promos for shows that I love. Um, there's also going to be a trailer for a second movie review, and uh, this one's a doozy. We're going to come back right <laughs> after the break, talking about Black Sabbath from 1963. We'll be back right after this. Movies need only three things. Badasses. You tell me who you want done, and I'll do the hell out of it. A chick with drive who don't take no jive. Boobs. Do you know that the female breast, known to be the source of life since Eve, can be deadly weapons? And body counts. Mathematics. 
politics of murder and menace. The BBNBC podcast discusses lesser-known action, exploitation, and horror cult cinema. You can find the show on iTunes, Stitcher Smart Radio, and SoundCloud by searching for BBNBC Podcast. You can also listen to each episode directly on the show's website at badassesboobsandbodycounts.com. Got the goddamn message? Let's go to work. You're listening to the podcast under the stairs. Watch is this the stands before me? Figure in black, which part? Boris Karloff, 
the personable Mark Damon, and lush and lovely women, even though one is from the netherworld, a vampire, a Vordalac. Black Sabbath, as ancient as superstition, as modern as the telephone. How nice you look with that towel around you. You always did have a beautiful body. Beautiful. A body to drive someone crazy. Who are you? Black Sabbath, the bare truth about the unbelievable, such as the brilliant beauty of a priceless jewel that holds within the body of a buzzing fly, a vengeful woman's murderous spirit. <coughs> Only on the seventh night of the seventh full moon can the living see the lifeless undead. I am hungry. Is he man or vampire? An adventure into black magic that goes beyond the boundaries of the supernatural. And a man's devoted love is welcomed by a woman's deadly lust for his blood. Welcome back. So, you have just heard the trailer for our second and final movie review of this podcast. This one was also directed by the maestro Mario Bava. It came out in 1963 and is known as Black Sabbath. However, it has an Italian name which I will butcher right now. Uh, Il Tre Volta della Pora, um, which I think is like, is it three... Faces of Evil? Yeah, Three Faces of Evil, right. Um, And this is an anthology... A movie and like we say it was directed by the, the man um, the the synopsis is listed on IMDB um, I actually quite like this one a trio of atmospheric horror tales about a woman terrorised in her apartment by phone calls from an escaped prisoner from her past a Russian court Count, sorry, in the early 1800s, who stumbles upon a family in a countryside trying to destroy a particularly vicious line of vampires, and a 90s era uh, nurse, 90s era, that's not right, (laughs) 1900s era nurse who makes a fateful decision while preparing the corpse of one of her patients, an elderly medium who dies during a seance. So, I mean, right. The first thing I'll say about this movie, uh, I'll, I'll kick us off here. The first thing I'll say about this movie is we were talking earlier on about the the template for the Jowl, which came out of Blood and Black Lace. But we said that it kind of touched on something previously. So the year before, one of the shorts here, The Telephone, um, kind of has a lot of the, the beginning sort of ideas of a Jowl. I mean, it has that kind of the feel without being overtly what we now know as a giallo. It kind of touches upon particular things. I will say before we go any further with this one, that there is a short in this, which has a scene that still to this day is so unsettling, so eerie, and so creepily terrifying to me that I still feel myself getting, my, my palms getting a bit sweaty when I watch it. Um, 
I, I think it's just the way it's shot or something so unsettling about it. Um, but in terms of this one, we're going to look at it from the point of view of, I mean, it was released in America, but when it was released in America, it got cut a little bit, things got changed, and the order of the stories was changed around, which confuses the fuck out of me, because <laughs> the, the, the most terrifying one is not the one that's at the end of the American one. I, I don't get the logic behind that. I'm assuming it's because um, they obviously had a, a star of American cinema in there and he was in the middle segment. Karloff was in the, the second movie in the Italian one. That that's the reason that's put at the end? I mean, do you know anything further about that one? Is why they, why they did it in the order they did in America? Probably a combination of that and the fact that, uh, that the Karloff segment is also the longest by a pretty significant amount. Yeah. Uh, and I guess that that's how they felt it should be kind of paced. But uh, when watching the Italian version, it's hard to imagine the order being anything but what it is. Yeah, it makes sense to me that you have that that one in the middle being quite long and then having that Absolutely. Kind of, short sharp thing to end with like, to me that just seems like a logical a logical streamline of how those movies should play so um what i love about this movie as well um because like i say we're gonna we're gonna deal with the italian order of movies mm-hmm. which was described in the the synopsis there so as the, the telephone is the first one the warlock's the second one and the third one is the 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 drip of water um and basically what i like about this is that at the start we get we have this kind of introduction, right, which is done by uh, Karloff himself, and Karloff's aged by this point. He's, you know, he's been, he's an older man, and I love the fact that he has that. There's a Karloff has this great way of. He's, I thought he was a really interesting actor, anyway. But there's there's a particular enjoyment on his face as he describes how terrifying this movie is going to be, <laughs> which is so wonderful when you, once again, compare to how this movie finishes, the Italian one anyway, how it finishes as well. And it kind of, he sets the, the, the groundwork. There's this creepy, almost um, weird, galactical, celestial purple <laughs> light behind him as he stands on this mound uh, and then proceeds to give you the the, 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 the the mission statement for what this movie is going to do. And then we, we jump into the telephone, which is like a very, very simple kind of Jalo-esque, kind of, well, proto-Jalo, proto um, in that what we have is we have a woman, she comes home to her apartment, uh, her telephone goes, she answers it, no one's there. She puts the phone back down, telephone goes again, no one's there, she puts the phone down. On the third one, we get this creepy, sinister, what we think is male voice, uh, who then starts to terrorise her by... Telling her what she's actually doing in the room, you know, when she puts her robe back on, he then phones to say, why did you put the robe back on? You know, I I like your body without the robe. But he keeps coming back to this central point of he is going to kill her. Um, and, you know, this, this terrifies her. Um, as the movie goes on, she calls her friend. Uh, Mary, um, who she we learned to find out she has not spoken to in quite a while. Now she phones her after she finds out that this guy Frank um, has escaped from prison. We don't know what the link is there till later on we find out that she's been involved with testifying against him which put him in prison. So we think that Frank is the person that has, has come to to kill her. Um, so she speaks to Mary. Mary eventually agrees to, to come and stay with her. Um, Mary, we see in a cut shot, which I think is wonderful, um, because it 
the, the, the thing that I think works really well in this segment is very much like the Blood and Black Lace thing is that we have an idea how how the movie is going to end or we, we think we know what the twist is and then mm-hmm. the movie twists again. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a, it's a very it's a very clever twist because it's almost like a play on the, the boy who cried wolf um, on, on some respects. <laughs> so uh, we find that it's her that's been doing the phone call. She's been putting a handkerchief over the phone, being quite menacing. She's done this to get back in the good graces of her friend, her friend Rosie. So she comes down and um, she uh, basically... We think once again that maybe she's going to kill her friend because she crumbles something in her drink. There's also a false sequence with a knife where she puts the knife under the pillow. It turns out it's a tranquilizer. Her friend is knocked out. She writes this lovely note. She pens this lovely note. Um, and in this note, she basically explains that she missed her friend and this is she hopes that she can forgive her. She uses this as a as an excuse to become back uh, a friend with her to come in her good graces. But little does she know that. Uh, <laughs> Frank has found the house and Frank has made his way into the house and Frank strangles her with a pair of her stockings um, and as she is, is dying, as Mary is dying, Rosie comes to, notices Frank's in the room, um, she grabs a knife which she hides underneath the, 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 the quilt covers and when Frank comes to get her, she stabs Frank, killing Frank. Um, I, I mean, in terms of this one here, uh, Doug, uh, like we were saying, obviously, pro-Jallo, um, what, what, what was your feelings on the telephone? I mean, what, I mean, other than the, the thing that always stands out to me when I watch it is, um, why does she not phone the police? That's the first thing that kind of sticks out to me. It's something that, I, 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 on future watches, I have not as much, but I always think... She phones a friend, but she doesn't phone the police. And the guy says, don't phone anyone, I will know. Um, what, what do you make of the telephone? Uh, it's interesting. I bet there's a lot of people who are listening to you describe this plot who might only be familiar, whether it be through the Netflix, uh, because the Netflix has the American version of this, or uh, maybe just only have seen the American version on video, who are yes. like, what is he talking about? That's not how this goes <laughs> at all. Because the telephone is the one that's been most manipulated out of these three stories for the U.S. release to be very different. Uh, and my first experience with it was the U.S. version. And, oh, and right. And so the, in that version, it's funny because this is kind of a proto-Giallo, but the U.S. version, even though it's it's really just been bastardized, is sort of a proto-supernatural Giallo, uh, like a, yeah. a later Argento one, <laughs> because they've in, in the U.S. version, instead of Frank getting out of prison and it being kind of fairly straightforward he then coming over and and uh and 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 killing somebody uh there's a part where she gets a note and in the american version ghostly writing appears on it because frank in that version is not in prison he's dead so when frank appears at the end he's actually a ghost yes (laughs) which is really hard to make any sense of at all um I really like the telephone. It is my least favorite of the three, uh-huh. uh, mostly because ev- everything that I enjoy about it gets kind of improved upon in later uh, Jolly or or really even in, in this very movie yeah. improved upon. One of the things you didn't really mention in your plot summary and is really the most interesting part, I think, of the telephone and and might even explain her, some of her reticence to call the police is that Rosie the main character in this is supposed to be a a prostitute. Yes, uh, yes. And and Frank is supposed to be her pimp, which is why uh you know there there's a particularly rocky relationship and and even more interestingly Mary 
the idea of her because like in the and and I didn't pick up on a lot of this the first time I saw this believe me and and in the American <laughs> version it's been excised entirely but Rosie <laughs> I mean cuz cuz it seems kind of extreme she drugs her writes her this letter the idea is supposed to be that Rosie was uh, sorry Mary Rosie's the main character that Mary was her lesbian lover lover uh, yeah, 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 yeah yeah and and that she comes over and drugs her and has her way with her and then writes a note at the next day apologizing and explaining that she was the one who who uh, was on the telephone and really she she wanted to get back in her good graces in in terms because she she loved her or had strong feelings for her and wanted to continue their relationship. So the complexity there, even yes. though it's not overt, is really interesting. And that I think you know, it, it, and and certainly ahead of its time. Remember, we're talking 1963. Three, pimp, yeah, yeah, pimps and call girls and and lesbian lovers, uh, and and so that to me is the most interesting part of it because. The, those the complexity of relationships and the other thing that's really interesting is how tight it is because again it's a yeah. very short there's only three characters in the whole thing it's so much better when removed from those supernatural elements where it is almost like a a mini play and it is very stylish but not stylish in the way that blood and black lace is with all the colored gels and things like that there are yeah. some really spooky moments my favorite is there's a part where um where rosie looks out the window and there's a set of eyes they're staring yes. at her, and that's really yeah, creepy. Yeah. In the American version, we discover that she has – there's a whole extra sequence where she opens her door, and uh, uh, there's a neighbor who it was the neighbor looking in on her, on her window, yeah. and you get this extra character that just waters the whole thing down. And it makes doesn't it make so any sense. Yeah. yeah, it really, really, really kind of defeats the, the momentum of that movie. Even the, the change movie, it defeats the momentum of it because then you're like, all right uh, – it's a neighbor. Uh, the fact that you get those eyes in the Italian one with no explanation. Yes. Out with because the, the thing about it is when we find out that Mary's the one that's been making the phone calls, you then get to a stage where, and you don't maybe the first time watching it think about it, but you then start to think, well, how did she know she undressed? How did she know that she got dressed? How you know? Because Mary's sure. Mary's not there. Mary's in her apartment. How how does that? How does that work? And there is, like, on future watches, there is that kind of disconnect between full narrative and, you know, a, the, the kind of idea of what is happening in the movie, which, once again, is what later giallos do. So it's quite funny that, you know, the, he follows... He, he, he then follows the, the telephone by making Blood and Blacklist, which has a clear, distinct narrative, which kind of makes sense to... When you look at this one... Saying what? Why? Why do later Jalos kind of they, they take the ideas from Blood and Black Lace, but the narrative from the telephone? It's like really, really, really quite weird. Um, I think the the, the thing that kind of and I would agree with you. Out of the three, this is the one that I think it's a good opener. It, it's not too, it's not too impactuous. I think the the thing that I think about this is they get each. Mo- in my opinion, anyway, each one gets better. The the last one is my favorite. The, the drop of water is my favorite out of the three. Um, so it it builds, it gradually builds to this crescendo, which is once again one of the reasons why I think the ending, the very ending of this movie, works so well. Is kind of almost like the uh, the peak behind the curtain of this movie after the 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 most terrifying segment out of the three. That kind of the, the kind of pulling the curtain back and saying this is how we did it um, <laughs> it, it kind of you know it's that kind of uh, the, the collective audience sigh of relief um, I think one of the things that's pretty cool about this one as well um, is is the fact that our main character Rosie 
she's very, very convincing in her portrayal of of fear and terror mm, right true. from as as the story unfolds, as she first gets the call that no one answers, which is a bit unsettling. And then the first time the voice comes on and, you know, who is this? And, you know, I'm going to kill you. And she's still at that level. She's still kind of playing it off. She's not really truly terrified. But as more details come out on the phone, you know, of the, the fact that she's putting on the robe, and then she realises this person can see her. Right. Um, and, and the fact that, you know, all these things slowly start kind of building up. Her portrayal of fear in it, I think, is really quite interesting. Um, and I love the fact that when she sees her potential former lover um, being murdered at the end of this, uh, you know, at the end of the movie, the fact that she she kind of almost grows a, a, a you know, a... She kind of turns it on her head. At the very end, she becomes very strong. She almost becomes a final girl, as we right. would know them. Um, and her actions to kill Frank off at the end, which is it feels like a really cool character. Um, a character swipe for her to go from being this kind of confident woman at the very start to being terrified and needing someone to be with her to being uh, incredibly aggressive at the end and her killing off Frank, you know, she almost like becomes incredibly independent at the end um, and by killing him. Uh, I mean, uh, is there anything else you want to say about the telephone before we move on to the next one? Because the next one is longer and has quite a bit in it, so anything else you want to say about the telephone? I mean, in some ways I think the telephone might, it's more representative of the giallo that that a lot of people would be familiar with than even blood and black lace is uh because of the way that it's kind of all pieced together and the fact that there are elements of it that are kind of unexplained and unexplainable uh again like you said it's a good opening piece it is you know very satisfying it's very interesting but uh the lesser of of the three in this yeah so move on to the 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 word lack um, which is the second second movie, and we we find a count who uh, is travelling. Um, it comes across uh, this corpse, which has been beheaded, um, and has what appears to be a knife plunged into its chest, which we later find out, out has been plunged into its heart. Um, he removes the blade, and he uh, comes across a like a, a small kind of house, a cottage, so to speak, uh, where a family are living. Um, and this family, uh, they find out that the knife, well, from when he shows them the knife, they find that the knife belongs to their father who has been uh, gone for several days. I think it's five days mm-hmm. uh, he's been missing. Um, they, they then, later on, after after going through the story uh, of the family being uh, gone and all the rest, he kind of falls in love with with uh, one of the, the, the daughters in the household. Um, and then... The, the father returns. Uh, the father is played by uh, Boris Karloff. Wonderfully played by Boris Karloff. Mm-hmm. I think this is w- w- one of my favourite Karloff performances just because the makeup is so incredibly weird. The lighting on him at all times is so incredibly weird. And his kind of really strange performance in here, mm-hmm. when you see the, how the family kind of reluctantly welcome back in, I wouldn't be letting this man anywhere near my child, my house, <laughs> or anything. Uh, so he, he comes he comes back um, with an obvious stab wound in his chest, 
the family will let him back in. The dog has been barking at him constantly. He convinces his son to go and kill the dog. Um, and we get these wonderful sequences where he's sitting, speaking to his family, and he's uh, his grandson Ivan, who he uh, who he calls over, and you're just like, why why are you letting your child go near him? Why are you let- <laughs> pull your child back? Um, and everything seems to be okay, maybe, um, until everyone goes to sleep. And uh, we get that wonderful sequence where um, Karloff comes into the room of the Count and uh, kind of stands over him menacingly. And when the Count turns round, he's not there. And you're like, oh, right, maybe that was... Oh, I don't where's hiding? To, um, to turn around and see him staring incredibly <laughs> evilly in the window, which I think is fucking brilliant. <laughs> Just until he's, he's seen, he's like, all right, I better move. Um, and then he... The, the grandfather kill, kidnaps the, the grandson take him takes him away, the Count realises he's taken him away and forms the father who chases him down and brings back the, the dead Ivan back to the house um, and obviously they're very much aware by now that he has been turned into a, a wordalak which is basically I'm assuming some sort of Italian vampire Um and one of our characters has already died. We, we get the feeling that is a vampire by the the puncture wounds on the, one of his son's necks, uh, who is is dead when the, the the father goes out to get his son back, brings him back. Um, the wife talks him out of desecrating the body for obvious reasons. You know, says her son, mm-hmm. which they don't do, which was a stupid move. <laughs> um, so yeah, really, really bad. That was bad thinking. Um, and I'm assuming they bury him. Mm-hmm. Because he's outside the next time we see him, and the son comes back, desperately wants to to get back into the house. The mother, you know, wants him in. The father won't let him come in. The mother plunges a set of uh, scissors into her husband's side, killing him. Because yeah, uh, mm-hmm. to run downstairs and let Ivan back into the house, and of course Ivan kills her. Meanwhile, the count uh, is desperate to try and take. Uh, the, the, his love away from all this but she won't listen, they try and chase after them, ultimately she is uh, turned by her father, her father turns her into a wordalak as well and they all go back to the house uh, the count returns back to the house to find out where his love has went uh, is mesmerised in her eyes as she changes and uh, yeah, there we go <laughs> you know <laughs> She bites his neck. Uh, not a very happy ending in this one, to be honest. Everyone is, succumbs to the beast. Um, this one has like a really... It's like watching a, a Hammer horror movie, but as only Mario, Mario Bava can do, this is a Hammer horror, but with a twist. Um, the, the Once again, talking about the coloured light and the makeup, it's all wonderful in this movie. I, th- I think this one is has such a, a, a very distinct visual style, which, I mean, when when Karloff eventually comes back into this movie, and like I say, there is that kind of goofy, kind of purple-grey sort of makeup on him, where at first it's quite unsettling, it kind of looks like a corpse, but um, he walks along until the light shines on him, and then every stare that he pulls in this one is this iconic, sure. eerie... Kind of, and, and Karloff was the, the master of, of, of doing that anyway. You know, he had a very... A very theatrically uh, artistic sort of face. Anyway, he was you know he was known for those great long stares and those mm-hmm. piercing eyes. Anyway, 
the fact that he is a bit older in this one and he has the makeup on him, which I mean, there's a the makeup look makes him look even older than he is. Um, <laughs> I think it's I think it's wonderful, uh, and this once again, this one isn't particularly. I mean, none of these these three here are particularly gory in the sense, but the 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 horror of of the family being turned against each other by being um, slowly converted into these these creatures is 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 quite. I think that's where the horror in this one truly strikes its its uh, its groove, so to speak. In that you're getting things like. Um, parents grieving over their son they know what they need mm-hmm. to do to stop it going any further but they can't bring themselves to do it because it's still their son it's still their child um, and ultimately condemning themselves the mother knows that when the child's out there that you know he is not her child, her child has died she knows that but it's still her child and he's cold and she'll do anything to protect him um, the count even knows to a certain extent that things are not right when he goes back to that house, but it's still because he is in love with her. Right. Still is drawn in, and it's it's this idea of 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 love and family being twisted um, to serve the evil purposes of this warlock, which I think is so so clever. What was your take on this one? Uh, now uh, this is where we're going to come at at in a slight difference in our opinion, uh, though not a significant uh-huh. one. The word of lack is my favorite segment in uh, Black Sabbath, and in fact, might be my favorite segment in any anthology movie ever. Really? Uh, yeah, no, I love the 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 word of lack, and I also think it might be my favorite vampire movie ever, even though it's a segment in this as opposed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I not only do I. I mean, I really love everything about it. I really, really do. I, I love how eerie it is. I love how it really captures. I mean, it it, it takes place in Russia, and it has that kind of uh, foreign feel to it, everything that's going on. The fact that it starts with this kind of really explicit violence with a beheaded corpse, and the way that it evolves into this really strange family dynamic. And then when Boris Karloff... I mean, he really was an old man when he made it. He was in his 60s, so... Um, that performance could easily have been, oh, hey, look, it's Boris Karloff. But it, it isn't. It's a performance. Yeah. It's him, you know, and he comes in and he is the patriarch of this family and he dominates everything when he comes in and everyone's wary of him. And you start to wonder at first, it's like, is this just how this dynamic normally is? Or yeah. how much is off about his behavior? Because we're seeing it from the perspective of, of uh, Mark Damon's character. And the way that he kind of asserts himself where he's jumping be- between being this warm familial person like how he how he acts with the child and then asking his son to go and kill the dog in a very you know a very straight very uh cold and distant way uh i find that so unsettling yeah. and then all the especially after the child then dies and the, that sequence when the child is outside and calling and saying, I'm cold, I'm cold. And they do that great shot of him pounding on the door. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, that's uh, that's like Salem's Lot type territory, right? Right. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. And it the, there's – you mentioned it being like a Hammer movie. And it, 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 there really there, – there certainly is. It also feels a little bit like those uh, Roger Corman, Edgar Allan Poe movies uh, yeah. or even something like Mask of the Red Death. But t- to me, this is such a potent – scary but not 
Scary is such a strange word because everyone yeah. has their own tolerance levels, but eerie is the way that I really see it, where I find it unsettling uh, to a number of different degrees. But one of the things – actually, there's two things that I really dig about the kind of the ending of it. One is the idea that there's a sort of a creation of a new family dynamic. Yes. The idea is that these, these people – that Boris Karloff's character of Gorka – he really does want to bring his family together again, and he's going to do that by turning them all into vampires. And yeah. when, uh, when the Count takes away his new girlfriend away from it, the family come to get them because – or get her in particular – to bring her back into the family. And at the end of the movie, they all get turned. So, I mean, they're all together again in this family unit in this new kind of perverted form. And I, I just find that so interesting. And the other thing is the fact that – evil triumphs at the end of this and yeah. and this might be the first movie in cinema history where evil triumphs so clearly i mean yeah. that that just almost never happens even now it really really happens but we're certainly used to it but to this extent i mean you can just imagine how jaw dropping it was just to see the, all the good characters get taken out one by one and you're left with nobody at the end it's such a bleak cold movie or cold segment, I should say, in a lot of different ways. I love the visual style of it. I love the idea that as the supernatural elements take over, that it becomes more stylistically uh, closer to what you expect out of Baba, where with a lot of the gels in the background and it, uh, and all the outside sequences, which are clearly shot on a stage. That there's no no, they don't feel any need to make it seem like reality at that point. I, I just really love this segment from from beginning to end. Yeah, I think um, I think. I mean, that's funny. There's one of these ones as well that even when you're you're talking from it from the point of view of one of your favorite vampire movies ever, and this is one that I never think of, and I don't know why. And you're saying that to me, and I'm like, yeah, this is brilliant. It's absolutely awesome. Vampires, yeah. Why didn't I? Why, why once again? Why why is it that you, that I feel myself overlooking these things? I think. Um, yeah, I, I can't. I'm, I can't even begin to to top anything you've just said there. I think it is incredible. I think just. It's like you say, the fact that it has such a clear uh, negative note. I've seen through one spectrum, the other note is that, you know, they're all together forever, right. which on another level could be seen as being romantic. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? It's, 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 so, it's so clever. Once again, he's one of these these guys that seems to be quite comfortable kind of marrying up the juxtaposing sort of themes side by side in a, in a way which kind of feels on some level quite satisfying. Um, I, I mean, yeah, I, I, I can totally say I, I do love this one. I tell you why I love the next one, though, right? I tell you why. <laughs> there should be no guess. I've told you it's creepy as fuck to me. Um, the, the, the drop of water, the final segment is the one that I think most kind of feels like something from an Edgar Allan Poe poem. Right. It has that almost kind of telltale heart sort of feel about it. Oh yes. Um, so the, the the synopsis of this one is we're in England now, um, and a nurse. Uh, it's called out to uh, this like large kind of we're assuming it's like a mansion mm-hmm. uh, to basically get the the this elderly medium this countess uh, get her ready for you know for being buried. So she she shows up. We find that that everyone believes she's died of a heart attack except her housekeeper. Her housekeeper says that she was involved in some sort of seance. She was obsessed with talking with the dead, and we think that's possibly what killed her. So the nurse shows up and right from the start we see the body and the face is contorted in this most horrible fashion where the lips are kind of pried apart and this kind of snarl and the eyes are wide 
very, very wide, still, still very much open, and in this horrible, contorted face of death. Um, but she is not necessarily concerned about that. What she's concerned about is the fact that she sees this ring, this ring with a precious jewel in it on the, the woman's finger. Um, from from that point onwards, she's basically resigned herself to the fact that she's going to steal this ring. So she, uh, we, we kind of, we get a lot of, what I love about this one is we get, the, the pacing's brilliant in this one. We get a lot of setup, um, and there's a lot of kind of, kind of false scares so to speak at the beginning which ultimately are twisted to full-on scares at the end i mean that this movie starts off at first being very very subtle and then brings a, a sledgehammer <laughs> to knocking a nail at the end so uh, she eventually manages to she closes the 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 dead woman's eyes and um puts her to peace by you know dressing her in her or what will be her funeral attire um and takes the ring off her finger and when she takes the ring off her finger it drops and she she's scrambling for it and the the dead woman's arm obviously falls off the side gives her a bit of a jump scare she picks up the ring and um, she gets the i think it's pantyhose or something she gets from the, the 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 maid to bring back and she notices that the corpse's eyes are back open and the face is snarled back to the position it was in and what's even more alarming is uh, the fact that when she removes that ring she hears a drip of water and she notices that there's a fly where the ring was, um, which, you know, the fact coupled with the open eyes and all the rest freaks her out. So they both leave. So she goes back home and from the moment she goes home, things start going a bit crazy. <laughs> um, she's sitting looking at the lovely ring on her finger when she starts to once again hear the sound of dripping water. Um, she finds out that, that maybe some of her taps haven't been... Uh, screwed as tightly as it could be uh, so she does that all the while looking pretty freaked out then when she sits down she hears the creaking of doors so she goes to try and investigate that and when she goes into her bedroom she sees the dead body of the the countess lying there not only is she lying there but she's staring right at her and then she sits up in this very very cold slow motion which is in my mind, terrifying. It's absolutely fucking terrifying. And she scrambles out the door. And when she scrambles out the door, she turns around and the old woman is sitting in a rocking chair petting a cat. <laughs> which, once again, fucking terrifying. So she then runs away. She leans against this wall and we see the creepy hand. And I think this is the, what's so interesting about this one is how many of these ghost movies, I'm looking at you, The Conjuring, I'm looking at you, Insidious, <laughs> have, have completely ripped off this fucking movie because the hand comes round and touches her and she gets a jump but the hand's not there and then she looks at the end of the room and the hand, even J, when I'm thinking about this now, J-Horror, <laughs> I'm looking at you, The Ring, uh, <laughs> fucking, right, so the, the hand's coming round another side of the wall, she gets terrified, she turns around and then we get this, oh my God, this image of her our body floating through the air would, and it would keep focusing once again very much like the ring on her face which is contorted and the eyes are wide and she moves towards her. We then cut to the sequence of her, basically her reaction which is pure terror and she strangles herself. Mm -hmm. she, she basically cuts off the oxygen to her brain with her own hands. We then move to the police arriving at the house. Her neighbour is there. Her neighbour has found the body 
And as the police are looking at the body, we also have this extremely terrified look on her face. Once again, very much like the ring, um, but this terrified look on on the nurse's face. And as they're examining the body, they realise that the ring has been pried from her body. Um, at the same time, we look at the woman who has clearly stolen the ring, her neighbour, and at that point we hear the drip of water. And as we look back down, the camera pans back down and sees her face again, which is not too dissimilar to the face of the original Countess. And that's how the movie finishes. Um, this one was cut as well, wasn't it? This one is different. The American version has, has bits that are slightly different here, most notably in the, the score. Yes. Well, I, the score of the entire film is is was redone for the American release, which is so strange because the the original. I mean, you know, you you wouldn't think there'd be any need to to switch the music for this sort of thing, but yeah, yeah and it changes the whole tone of all three of these pieces. Yeah, because the the American one, I find that when I'm watching it, I find how less threatening it is. Sure. J- just by the fact that they use all these massive orchestral stabs to convey. You know the, the the scares, almost like a technique which is used in every horror movie now, mm-hmm. um, is used in this one where we have these theatrical, orchestral stabs of music to. And I think what makes the Italian one so unsettling is the fact that it is so minimalist and sparse with its sound yeah. design. Um, that makes it even creepier. It's like we're in a quiet room, everything's quiet. All of a sudden, there's a creak of a door. Where's the creak of the door coming from? Um, the fact that they changed that to in the American one is a banging. Someone's like actually banging on a door. That annoys me mm. uh, because there's something uh, more unsettling about a door moving than there is about someone chapping the door. I think that's yeah, it. Kind of baffles me there. Um, so, so what's your take on the drop of the water? Uh, what, 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 what do you what, what do you think of this one? Oh, because this one the color the color one in this one is Argento. Like Argento must have seen this one and took it and <laughs> ran with it because there's purples, blues, pinks, yellows, you know, greens all coming from a natural light sources in this one. This uh, I love the drop of water. I think it's actually the the scariest of the three by a significant amount, uh, and it 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 holds up in a way. That anthology segments from 70s uh, amicus uh, type anthologies don't really hold up. It, it, it actually feels almost like a modern, almost like a Tales from the Crypt type story, even though yeah, you're yeah. right. And it also has a lot of echoes, of course, of Edgar Allan Poe with, with the guilt aspects. I also love the fact that it doesn't, nece- it doesn't necessarily have to be interpreted as a supernatural story, that you could see it all as based on the person's guilt as opposed to, uh, to, to something supernatural happening. Yeah. Um, one of the things in uh, Tim Lucas's book, uh, "All the Colors of the Dark," which is really the 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 final word on Mario Bava, it's just a, it's a tome. It's it's a massive, massive book. One of the things he mentions in it is the idea that the 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 woman, the corpse that she that that the uh, the the nurse goes to see, uh, she was a medium, and that the 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 idea is supposed to be that she was in a seance when she passed away. So she's sort of trapped between this life and death state. Which is yeah. uh, which is what kind of prompts all of the the action, and I love that idea. I love that idea of this of of uh, th- this sort of um, almost a, a locked in uh, character where she's in a corpse, but is aware of what's going on and has a certain ability to be able to control what's going on around her. Um, yeah, yeah. But this is such a visually stunning part. The the mansion is such is amazing uh, that that it starts in uh, and then it's funny because at that point 
the the opening kind of first ten minutes or so uh, it has such a, an amazing visual style, and then it goes back to the nurse's apartment, and then the style is still there, but then it focuses much more on the individual scares and the individual kind of creepiness of it, and it 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 it's, it it starts to remove any distractions except for the sound and for the 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 tension that's building, and it works so well, and that face. The face, I mean, oh, it's, oh, that one will stick so with you. This one sticks with everybody. I think. I think when people think of Black Sabbath, it's that face is the kind of the first thing that comes to mind. I think actually that face was actually created by Mario Baba's father, which is <laughs> talk about oh, a family God. affair. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But uh, but you're right. The 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 combination of the the visual style and and the sound design in this segment it really makes it. Uh, Outside of just kind of the look of the characters, this is the segment that you could show to anybody now, and, and they would still find it creepy. They, you wouldn't have to explain anything to them. It's like, sit down and watch this. You will get creeped out. Yeah, definitely. I think it's, yeah, I think it's one of these ones, again, that's just, it's just so, I, 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 and the thing is, you can, you, I, like I say, we were obviously talking about the, the after effects of, of, of Bava in terms of mod, it, it is now like on some level it is it is very fashionable as a filmmaker to to quote Italian directors as being a, a direct influence. I mean that that mm. we have a whole influx of directors now from not only my country but your country and the states as well. That that are, when when they are asked about their influences, Bava, Argento, um, Fulci, these names are dropped now. Where for a long time it, it wasn't necessarily seen that way, you know, it was kind of these people were kind of obscure. And when I look at like the influx of the more modern ghost movies that I've seen, there's no way I can't chart it back to some of the stuff that Bava's doing here. I mean, the, mm. it, it's so, so, so blatantly influenced. Now, whether or not that's come out in a, in a roundabout way where the filmmaker has seen the works of Bava and that has influenced or if he has seen a filmmaker who has been influenced by the works of Bava so almost getting it a, a, right. a, a sort of hand-me-down <laughs> um, without really realising that he has been influenced is, is so fascinating um, obviously watching it the last couple of times because I watched this a few times in the last month just because I found myself, it was one of the reasons I wanted to talk about it, because going back and watching it after a while and feeling myself go that was a big question that always came out for me was why isn't this one always talked about when anthologies are mentioned? Because right. to me, this one has... There's no really any weak link. All three stories are interesting in their own right. Some are more effective, some have... I love the fact that all three of them are so clearly different. Mm -hmm. You know, they, 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 there's one which is a kind of a murder thriller. There's one which is kind of a gothic horror. Mm -hmm. And there's one which is a ghost story. Mm -hmm. So that the three of them are completely different styles by the one director. However, they feel they feel like they should be in this anthology. None of them feel like, well, you know, he, he obviously shot that one as, at the last minute just to give him the, right. the, the you know, the third one. Or They all feel like like he took the time and the, the, the care to, to craft them into this one movie, which you don't get modern anthologies. Where we're saying it as an anthology now, when you sit down to watch one, like it, maybe it's ABC's of Death, right. or it's VHS or whatever, and you sit down and watch them, you kind of know when you sit down to them, there's going to be a two or three of these that I like. The majority <laughs> of them, I, you know, there'll be some that I think are all right. The majority of them I won't like. Um, and VHS, as a more, more concise anthology, has always had that issue. 
um, of I know that there's going to be maybe one, one and a half that I really like. The, there's going to be a couple that I think are all right. There's there's going to be one that I hate, guaranteed. <laughs> um, it's, it's just a given, uh, and this one doesn't have that. This one, this one kind of kind of toes the line quite well in that it knows what it's set out to do. Uh, if we now go and talk about the ending, right? So basically, we in the Italian version, we're left with that horrific idea of this: the the, the next woman, the next thief, is going to be stalked by uh, this contorted, evil faced. Um, sort of ghost or even by our conscience to an extent um, which I think on some levels I actually think I prefer that idea that your your conscience will mm-hmm. manifest in such a way that the guilt will manifest in such a way that it will ultimately be your demise um, I, I quite I think that's on some level a lot creepier but um, we then get uh, the, the Wardalak version of uh, Karloth on the top of his horse uh, slowing down the horse to basically tell people that he he hopes that they they have a safe journey. I love the fact that once again, <laughs> with with glee and relish on his face, he, he tells you to remember and look behind you, and you know look under the bed and all these things. Which you know, <laughs> if you're an audience member having seen that in the cinema in the sixties, you're probably not feeling great right now. Um, and then. He then, you know, whips the horse ah, and starts to ride the horse. And then the camera pulls back. We get almost a quirky ragtime sort of piano thing kicks <laughs> <Yep>. in. <laughs> and you basically see that the, the, the trees that he's running past on his horse. Well, first his horse is mechanical. It's someone basically working a winch to make the horse move. Um, and the trees are being held by people who are running them past cameras, which is almost a very Sam Raimi thing. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? Uh, running round and round the circles. And then we pan out further and see that the supernatural light is being conveyed by a light which has got a cardboard circle with cutouts spinning round it. The the thunder that we hear is people shaking sheets of steel metal. It's just it's just so clever and it I love the fact that once we get all that, if you're in the audience you're you're reminded that it's only a movie. Right. And that's ultimately what Bava always wanted to do. Bava wanted to terrify people but he didn't I don't think Bava ever really wanted to send people home in a state of, you know, terrified uh, euphoria I kind of wanted to send people back at the end reminding them that it was uh, at the end of it it's only a movie and I think that's what's wonderful about this ending and I think the the person the American person that decided to cut that out should have been slapped in the face <laughs> I think it's I think it's you know uh, why why change that you don't need to change that it's it, it's, it's good the way it is I love how playful it is you know yeah. it, it the one one things I have difficulty with when it comes to anthology movies are the 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 need, especially these days, to do a wraparound story, something that yeah. kind of connects everything together. There's really no thematic connection between the three stories here. The the only connection is the fact that they're directed by the same pe- person and has the, have who has a very distinctive visual style that he brings to these pieces, but they still look and feel very very different. And Boris Karloff, who I mean, audiences would have already known him as kind of a, well, not only a figure of horror, but he had already done that TV series thriller at that point. So he'd already kind of introduced stories like this. You yes. know, he's just there as as this kind of figure to say a couple of words that 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 just kind of uh, branches uh, from one story to the other. But, he, you know, he's Boris Karloff. And uh, there's always kind of a wink and a kind of a knowing nod to the audience whenever he's doing these introductions. His performance in The Wordalac is so iconic and, and perfect that it's so great that he's able to separate the, the host version of Boris Karloff from the actor version. And then at yeah. the end, you get both. 
right? You get yeah, it. Yeah. Going, it's it's like it's like this is the character, and this is what the greater world of that character is when you pull back, back, and back. And uh, like I said, the idea that the American distributors thought that it would make the movie look low rent is so ridiculous because what it really shows is holy shit look at all the effort they have to go right yeah. you think it'd be easier just to get a fucking horse <laughs> yeah this is it. yeah how, how difficult is it to just get a horse and just film <laughs> but, it in a field and yeah <laughs> but the controlled element of what they're doing right and and you see these guys it, it there is a, a real ridiculous element to the idea of these these guys running around him in circles with the these <laughs> uh branches and and it it, it, it you the that separation of the audience and it's it, you almost feel for a moment it's like you know what we were really kind of taken in by this we were we were feeling all this tension but all you need to do is move back a couple of feet and suddenly the, uh, the what was terrifying becomes almost ridiculous but that doesn't affect say the next time you watch it it doesn't make you think all the way through oh you know <laughs> there's people running around in circles just off of the frame all it does is kind of give you a greater appreciation. To me, you know, this is one of those moments that probably hit a lot of young people who might have seen this and be like, "This is the magic of movie making. This is the this you know this is the magic trick behind everything." And this just kind of feeds your want to see more of it and also to know more about how all of these things are made. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine myself being at that time period watching at the end and not wanting to go and make a movie. Sure. It just looks like so much fun. I mean, the, the fact that you know the, the, you do get to peek behind that curtain at the end and see what they can do with just people, just just men, a camera, some lights, some sound effects, and all the rest. And the fact that it can create something as terrifying as you've seen, how does that not want? How does that not make you want to make a horror movie? I don't. I don't know. And it obviously did, and it obviously had a huge impact. Um, if we're closing this out, uh, we, we, we have to review this one with a grade as well. I think I know where this one's going, um, to be fair, because I, I know what my score is. Um, and we're using the same Netflix ratings again. Um, and we've, we've covered the technical aspects. So I don't feel guilty about doing a Netflix rating sure. on this one either. Um, it's a five for me. I think this is, like I say, arguably one of the greatest anthologies ever made and woefully underrated. And I, I don't understand... Hopefully, if we keep banging the drum loud enough, Doug, people will will start mentioning it more. Maybe. I mean, I think I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that most people, even now, and and by far, are more familiar with the U.S. version of it. Uh, and and th- though it, that's still a, a a fun movie to watch, if you want to have a deeper appreciation of it, you really need to see the original Italian version. Now, the only reason now I can understand, by the way, why people would gravitate towards the American cut. It, even and I mean it's more available, but even aside from that, because in the American version you get to hear Boris Karloff's voice. I mean, yeah. if, you, if you're going to watch this Italian version, then you're going to have to watch it in Italian. Which, I mean, I I I don't, I don't have any difficulty with that. But Boris Karloff, so much of his image and so much of how you think of him comes from his voice. It, there is a, a, a unfortunate disconnect from watching it and not having that with it. I mean, it, I one of the things that I really feel is a shame about the ending being changed those last couple of seconds, is that I would love to see that with Boris Karloff's voice, uh, with him yeah. doing that, right? Doing that that last little be- piece of, of speech. Um, so so I can see why people would gravitate towards the U.S. version, but if you want to have kind of the, the, the peak ideal experience of Black Sabbath or uh, Itre Volti Della Pora, uh, then, then you're going to want to 
get the Italian version. I think that I think I think its reputation will just increase, increase, increase. I'm gonna go. Yeah, I mean, I think I have to go five stars as well. I think that an anthology is so difficult. I think it's so difficult to do well, and it's so difficult pacing wise because it's you know if you put the drop of water first in this yeah. instead, then you have an entirely different experience. If you right and yes. and and so. so so the order is important, and uh, and the pacing of these individual stories, having that longer one in the middle is so important. The anthology really has come back in the last couple of years. You're absolutely right in, in terms of your opinions on things like VHS and the ABCs of Death. What you find is that there's always one or two that are so superior that it not only makes the rest look bad, they really are bad. That that there are some that that really just shouldn't be part of it. And because of the kind of collaborative nature of those sort of anthologies it actually works against them in the long run because there's no real editing process of you know what you should be able to tell someone this just doesn't match up to the rest so it can't be included with it but that's just not how it i mean for obvious reasons not how it would work this having the the kind of consistent vision of 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 a of someone so talented behind it that's a large part of what makes it work and it's also a large part of what made some of those 70s anthology movies work as well but here the fact that all of it is so tight the stories are so different that it has that uh it doesn't have a kind of labored uh framing story that that you don't care to go back to and then it has such kind of a a, a kind of a beautiful sweet fun ending i mean it, it really is the total package in terms of what a person would want out of a horror anthology Agreed 100%, sir. Agreed 100%. Well, I'd just like to thank you, uh, Mr. Tilly, for coming on the show to do these two reviews. If you could remind my listeners where they can check out your stuff. Absolutely. Uh, you can find me at dailygrindhouse.com. Uh, check me out on uh, Twitter at Doug underscore Tilly. That's T-I-L-L-E-Y. And check out the No Budget Nightmares podcast. That's at nobudgetpodcast.com or facebook.com uh, slash groups slash nightmares. all one word. That's brilliant. Thank you very much for coming back on the show at an incredibly early time again. <laughs> well, one, one day I'll have you back on the show and we'll do it at a more sensible time um, for you, I think. I think that's only fair. That's twice <laughs> you've had to get up early for me. So, um, But uh, yeah, if, if, you, if you are game, I would love to have you back on Absolutely. at some point. Mm-hmm. And maybe we tackle, maybe we just tackle a couple of Argentos how about that uh, I mean, I'll watch whatever you tell me to watch oh, see that's my favourite sort of guest my favourite <laughs> sort of guest right we're going to take a very short break just now when I return I'll be closing out the show right after these messages almost midnight enough time for one more story warning the midnight horror show is not safe for work and is definitely not for the faint of heart the following is a small sample of what you'll hear live every Wednesday night at 7 at allradiox.com I ain't heard from you shitheads for fucking years. Now, Webula, we do this thing that's called a live radio show on the internet. And so there's people that interact with us. Yeah, they're listening and responding to us right now in real time. Who, who, who's talking shit? <laughs> fuck, Somebody's talking shit? Someone named Fuckface. And so then, fuck you, Fuckface. <laughs> oh, you think we'll go off on tangents? <laughs> on the Midnight Horror Have show? you ever listened to this show before, Mark? <laughs> he was masturbating into the... The corpse of a fucking beheaded fish. Fucking uh, nasty motherfucker. <laughs> we're gonna end the show on corpse fucking this time, apparently. Anytime you talk about necrophilia, you're talking 
It's going to take a certain kind of person to watch it. Yes, it's a charmed life. Fuck you. <laughs> you can hear the Midnight Horror Show live at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time every Wednesday night at allradiox.com or download the show on iTunes, Podomatic, or at the allradiox.com page. You're listening to the podcast Under the Stairs. And welcome back, so you've been listening to the podcast Under the Stairs, episode number 47, where we did two Mario Bava reviews, uh, reviews of Blood and Black Lace, and Black Sabbath. I'd like to thank again my guest Doug Tilly from the No Budget Nightmares and um, the Not So Evil Episodes podcast for stopping by to chat some Bava with me. Um, I think we have made off-air arrangements that uh, Mr Tilly will be coming back to join me to do the Gates of Hell trilogy by Fulci somewhere down the line, probably April time. Can't wait for that one. That one's going to be a really cool topic. Um, And Doug knows his shit, so yeah, we're going to be in for a bit of fun on that review. Um, Moving forward, like I said earlier on, the next episode to drop will be Baz v Horror, and it's Baz taking on Friday the 13th part 5, 6, 7 and 8. We'll see how the Baz gets on going through the the kind of middle chunk of this franchise, the highs and the lows. God damn fucking Jason takes Manhattan. That's all I'm saying. Um, so that episode will be coming uh, a week today. And then after that, there's tons of guests appearing on the show. Um, loads of interviews. Uh, there'll be a standalone interview dropping with an interview that I conducted with horror artist Graham Humphreys. I mentioned him at the beginning of the podcast because he's designing a podcast under the stairs poster. Um, and I can't wait to, to drop that interview, which was incredible so much fun that guy is incredibly interesting knowledgeable and just all around very funny I I I think Graham's a a great guy so looking forward to that dropping as well and remember there are plenty ways to hear the podcast under the stairs you can check us out on iTunes if you're over there why not leave us a review and if it's a good review let's say maybe possibly potentially five stars the more of them we get the higher up the ratings we get boosted and the more chance that randoms are going to appear on the, the, the page to check out the show and that's that's kind of what I want. I want people to to stumble across us uh, and um, see what we've been enjoying for a wee while now. Why not? Yeah, five stars, maybe. Gone. I'll be your pal. Gone. Please. <laughs> um, also you can check us out on Stitcher remember the podcast under the stairs is a proud member of Legion Podcast Network um, you can hear the show over there with a, a multitude of other great shows um, you can also check out uh, a couple of shows that I am also a part of um, I'm one of the co-hosts over at the Midnight Horror Show um, I do a podcast which is Video Nasties based called Doing the Nasty and um, Duncan and Bo Come Correct which is a, another show I do has just finished up at season one so it's a perfect chance to go back through those 13 episodes all are available on legion podcast network and while you're at it check out the shows over at horror failure that's where you can check out doing the nasty um, and various other shows which are all really good plenty of stuff out there for you guys to listen to in between podcasts under the stairs listening and remember you can uh, leave us some feedback by email if you want at podcast under the stairs at gmail.com you can also uh, leave a question or ask for some advice from the Baz at Bazzy's Basement by sending an email to podcastunderthestairs at gmail.com and in the subject bar put Baz's Basement 
and that's where the Baz will answer your questions and then maybe possibly give you advice which is worthwhile and or potentially lead you astray. I can't make any guarantees either way. Um, so yeah, you can you can come across checkers out there. Remember, we're also on Twitter. I promise I'm going to start using it more at the moment. I'm pretty shit. Um, but our Twitter is um, at TputzCast. Um, that's at TputzCast. So you can check us out over there. Uh, add us, share us, follow Friday us, uh, whatever you want to do over there. Um, so I think that's everything I want to say on this show. I hope you have enjoyed it. I hope you go and check out uh, Blood and Black Lace and especially check out Black Sabbath. Show that movie some love. Um, and if you get a chance to check them out or have checked them out before, let us know on the Facebook page what you thought of them. Um, to be part of our Facebook group, all you need to do is go to Facebook, type in the top search bar podcast under the stairs, come across the closed group and join in with the shenanigans. Once again, you guys have been fantastic. So much stuff getting posted over there. Uh, I'm loving the, the, the films that people are checking out, the general conversations that are just being dropped. Um, it's, been, it's been a lot of fun checking that shit out. So um, with that out of the way, um, there's nothing left to say, but thanks very much for checking out the show and supporting us. Uh, please take care of yourselves out there, wherever you are, and remember the podcast Under the Stairs will be back before you know it. This is Duncan McLeish, live from the void, signing Yeah.